Good morning, I'm Chris Williams, and this is Fordham Conversations. Today on the show, we're doing something a little bit different. We're doing a science fair, where you'll hear three stories about three different scientific innovations. So I'm joined in the studio today with senior producer of Fordham Conversations, Alan Kanlick. Hello and Cityscape senior producer Veronica Volk. Good morning, Chris. And the three of us each took stories about technology, the future, science, innovation, and we explored different topics within that realm. There are probably things that you've heard of, like 3D printing, virtual reality, smart cities, but maybe you don't know that much about it, because going into this, I didn't. We found some really interesting stuff, right, guys? Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we did. So, Alan, we're going we're gonna to focus on your story first, and you did 3D printing. So what was it about that topic that interested you to, to pursue it? You can pretty much create any kind of uh, customized object quickly. So, Alan, you sat down with um, someone from Fordham who actually works with 3D printing, right? Yeah, Dr. Stephen Holler. Uh, so what does he do? He's a Fordham professor who, who's been teaching the engineering students here at Fordham how to you know, work with 3D printing technology. Okay, great. Let's take a listen. What exactly is 3D printing? Most of the 3D printing that you're familiar with is taking uh, some sort of polymer and heating it and building up a structure from the, the base uh, up. It's um, also known as additive manufacturing. I mean, that sort of describes it, I think, in terms of exactly what it is, is you're taking something and you keep adding onto it. And so you extrude this material out and you lay down layer by layer on a bed and you build up a structure and you heat the polymer and it cools and it becomes a hard surface. So it's like a more scientific way of building Legos. Yes. <laughs> So why do you think 3D printing has started to gain momentum? I think the maker community is actually uh, driving a lot of the, uh, the low-cost, easily available uh, 3D printers that are out there. MakerBot was, was, I think, by far the most successful of these 3D printing companies, but every other week I'm seeing a new one come up on Kickstarter for some other way of doing 3D printing. How long has 3D printing been around then? One of the companies that I know about, one of the big companies, Stratasys, has been around since... 89, I believe. So it's been, I guess, now 25 years. So it, why is it Why is it just because the technology is cheaper? Costs, costs have come down. Costs I have come down. If you, were, if you were to try to print something you know, 15 years ago, it would cost a lot. Material science has changed. There are new materials that are available that are more robust. I think some of the old 3D printings that you could have gotten done are more brittle. If you were to print something up, it, would, it was very delicate. You could break those pieces rather easily. Now that you brought that up, I mean, are there any inherent problems? Is is the technology as brittle? Like, what are some of the ways you guys are addressing those kind of, you know, manufacturing flaws? We're not addressing the flaws here at Fordham. Right, um, right. We're actually using them in, in courses to help students in their design of engineering okay. uh, in engineering projects. Um, there are other people out there who are working, developing new materials okay. um, so that they can do some interesting things with the printers and develop manufacturing, be able to do manufacturing with them. I was listening to one speaker from MIT, and they've, uh, they're working with two different materials. And so they, they make the device in one material, but then at near joints, they, they manufacture in joints into their design, and they put another material in there. And so that when that material is exposed to water, it, it starts to bend. And so that material expands, and so it causes that joint to fold. And so they have these self-assembling boxes or other um, things that they've done, polygons. Of course, you have to do it at MIT. I think everything has to get turned into the logo of MIT. And so they start with a strand, and they, they put it into water, and the thing folds up on its own and spells out MIT. <laughs> so that's kind of interesting because I know that in earthquake country, 
you know, houses have to essentially structured around wood because wood bends and moves when there's an earthquake, whereas if you have masonry, it just crumbles and breaks. So with 3D printing technology, you're able to almost you're almost emulating the the structure of wood and like the bendability of it is is it even more i guess bendable <laughs> so to speak um i th i think there are certain materials that could be uh, more flexible yeah. and and you could design a structure that maybe you wouldn't otherwise be able to do in in wood that could dissipate the load that you get from an earthquake these shock waves that come in maybe you could dissipate the energy in them better so one last technical question about 3d printing what exactly are the materials being used are they all just you know plastic polymers or does it go beyond that no, most of the materials that are being used in manufacturing and, and the maker community are all polymers. I like to tell people that it basically looks like the stuff that you get for a weed whacker. Oh, and okay. that's what it is. It comes on a, on a spool. It's a filament. Uh, but there are 3D printers that are being used where they're using biological cells. And so they're able to grow organs. There's a group at Princeton that developed a, uh, a bionic ear. So they, they basically 3D printed an ear and integrated some electronics with it. Uh, the hope is that in the future now you can just start making replacement parts. You see it come up on, on television, too. If you watch Grey's Anatomy, they talk about 3D printing. Those, those are real technologies that are available. So they're actually creating a 3D ear for the human body. Are they using off-the-shelf printers for these kinds of things? I believe they did use uh, an off-the-shelf printer, and they may have manufactured some of their own. The technology behind building one of these printers is not terribly difficult, the, the mechanics at least. There's, so what are the mechanics? Well, you've got a motor on some sort of translation stage, uh, some nozzle to eject some material, and then... In the ear? Uh, well, no, not in the ear. You grow oh, the, like you to, grow to the, make you, the ear. You grow this okay. on, a, on, a, on a bed, and then okay. you print it on some sort of table. The layers. like Yeah, so, so you just lay down okay. layer by layer of these cells, and they, they assemble, and they you build up this three-dimensional structure. And, and uh, I think the novelty that the Princeton group had done is that they were able to integrate uh, electronics in there. Okay. And while these electronics were only, I believe they were, they were only meant for radio waves at this point, it paves the way for putting other types of sensors in their pressure sensors that would make them sensitive to acoustic sounds. With these electronics that are being implemented in this fake or prosthetic ear that hopefully will be attached to a human being eventually, uh, is there a chance that it might even work more efficiently than the you know, natural human ear? I would say that you could probably put in some pretty sophisticated electronics. And so, yeah, maybe you, you would hear and you could actually develop this ear to work in different uh, audible ranges um, outside of the scope of normal human hearing. Whether that's a benefit or not, I don't know. <laughs> uh, it would be really bad if someone starts blowing a dog whistle then. Yeah. <laughs> At least specifically with the ear. I mean, how much would an ear cost, it, just, just manufacturing alone? I, I actually don't have a, have a good cost analysis for the, for the ear. Right. The, uh, the printing materials that we use, the plastics, are, are you know, relatively inexpensive. Okay. Um, if, you were, uh, if you were to compare it to the price of ink for your inkjet printer, it's much cheaper. You, know, you, can, you can buy a kilogram of this material for the 3D printers, and it's like 50 bucks. So, 50 bu so potentially, to make a human ear, it would cost $50. Like I said, I don't know about, oh, yeah, about sorry, the sorry. you know the the cells and, and but that's just for the material. Then there's there's still cost of ownership for you know the printers are more expensive, yeah. and so the ones that we're using are MakerBots. Mm -hmm. Those are accessible to uh, to the maker community, to the hobbyist. Um, the goal I think is to put one in every house. Why is the goal to put a 3D printer in everyone's home? They're really cool. <laughs> okay. I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, you've, you'd be able to to produce whatever you want uh, right. uh, on demand, you know, if you if you could design it properly. And actually, that was one of the things that the MIT group was working on as well, was trying to figure out how to make human-sized structures in the beds that are that are currently available for these uh, these maker printers, right? They're only 10 inches by 
eight inches by six inches as a build volume, you know, how do you make something? Um, and these are some of the challenges that are that are being worked out in the community to figure out how to make large scale structures because people are making, they're making dresses. I've seen 3D printed dresses. I've seen 3D printed shoes. So the, the idea is, can you make this in, in sort of one sort of monolithic piece and then just unfold it when you take it out of the printer and then and there you go, you have a dress that's, you know, four feet long or something. You will be saving so much money for so many husbands out there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's kind of interesting because, I mean, just out of personal experience, I had to have a mold created out of my teeth because I end up grinding my teeth a lot when I sleep. And the mold ended up costing me something ridiculous, like $500, you know. And every time I have to get my night guard replaced, more often than not, I have to get a new mold because the mold keeps on breaking. So... Could this potentially make creating a mold for, uh, out of my teeth much cheaper in the near future? Sure. Yeah. Sure. I mean, you could you could have a model of your teeth or a model of this night guard, and then just when you need a new one, print it up. You'll be saving me so much money. You got you to gotta keep on working on this. Uh, there was this company in China that actually used 3D printing to actually build houses, uh, specifically 10 houses in under 24 hours with about less than $5,000 per home. How does that work? Is that maybe a foreseeable advancement with 3D printing technology? Um, yeah, certainly the builders aren't going to be happy about that. <laughs> but in terms of in areas where resources are limited and, and you know, there's, there's overpopulation, it is being done to address some of the needs in those areas. It's quick, it's inexpensive, and uh, apparently they're robust. Uh, and it's not just China. I, I believe I've heard some work going on in the Netherlands, too, with their 3D printing, these types of structures. And how structurally sound are these 3D printed homes? Uh, I think they're better than what they're living in now. Oh, okay. Uh, but it, would, they wouldn't pass inspection in the United States? Um, no, I imagine they they probably would. They'd have to be designed appropriately. Okay. You know, and and again, these these homes, I, I don't believe have anything built into them. They're basically fancy sheds. Okay. I don't think there's any electricity built into them. No plumbing. So you'd have to actually put all that stuff in separately. You're just making you're making walls. So um, my fanciful dreams of building a giant evil draconian tower in my home isn't. I think it's, it's still possible. Oh, it's still possible. You just have you need a printer that's going to be big enough to print out a house. I just I really want that. Throw water balloons at the passing children. <laughs> Get off my lawn. Uh, that'd be fantastic. Thank you so much for coming in, and uh, you have a great day. You too. Thank you. Thanks, Alan. This is Chris Williams on WFUV 90.7, and you're listening to Fordham Conversations. With 3D printing, we can create things that we can hold or physically use, but we can also create digital environments with virtual reality. I decided to find out more about it, how it works, and whether or not it has practical implications for the future. I see a, a huge ocean or a huge lake. I feel like I'm on a helicopter. <laughs> it's pretty cool. All right, let's try this. Oh wow, looking at those are actually really cool. I'm starting to get the sense of 3D. Get, get more, get more, get That's Charlie at a virtual reality meetup in Manhattan, where tech enthusiasts and developers test out the latest gear in virtual reality, or VR for short. Charlie's playing a video game on the Oculus Rift, a VR head-mounted display that puts users into the world of the game. Here he flies in a spacecraft and battles yellow, slinky-like creatures in this Space Invader-style game. But rather than happening on a screen in front of him, it's all in a virtual space that feels like the real thing. But there's someone who can explain this better than I can. 
My name is Eric Greenbaum. I'm a patent attorney and the founder of Gemma VR. I'm also the organizer of the New York City Virtual Reality Meetup. Virtual reality, it's a complicated concept, but in essence, what we're talking about here is a head-mounted display that projects a computer-generated world into the field of vision of a, of a user or a wearer, such that when you look around, you, your, your view will be that computer-generated world. The applications of VR go well beyond gaming, and maybe one of the most exciting parts or one of the most exciting aspects about VR is the social world. So, you know, we all enjoy posting pictures and, you know, leaving messages for our friends in kind of a 2D screen, but imagine being able to get together with your friends and family and, you know, look at them face to face and be in a, uh, and feel like you're in actually a room with them um, all virtually. So what else can VR do? Well, lots of things. Imagine shopping online in a virtual aisle and selecting a pair of pants. Then you can try them on and see what they look like on you from a 360-degree angle. You can transport yourself into a virtual version of a historical moment and see what life was like at that time. Or you can watch a movie where the action's happening all around you. To understand how a VR movie would work, it might be best to think of it as a hybrid of a film, a play, and a choose-your-own-adventure story. I'm Adrian Vasquez of Velasco. I'm a co-founder of Total Cinema 360. Uh, we make live-action movies that you can experience in virtual reality. I was a filmmaker, and I still am a filmmaker, but I don't make traditional movies anymore. Uh, ever since I put on a virtual reality headset, I absolutely blew my mind on the concept of really being there, anywhere. And for me, that meant capturing the environment all around you with special cameras, you know, sort of think Google Street View, but with moving images. Uh, it means recording sound in all directions and coding it and, and building that environment so that it changes depending on where you're looking. And obviously the final step is putting on virtual reality goggles that'll put you in a movie that's bigger than an IMAX screen. Because even if you look behind you, you won't see the back of your seat, you will see what's behind you. And the applications for this are beyond you know, narrative storytelling in, in the classical cinema sense. This is news gathering, this is documentary, this is virtual tours, this is communications, you know. When I Skype with my grandmother with the 360 camera in the future, I'm not going to have to tell her to get back in the frame. 360 filmmaking and virtual reality filmmaking is going to make you more of a part of the story. You know, for example, if you're telling a romantic comedy, if you're sitting at a table with a couple, you know, the leads of the, of the story, of the movie, and you decide to look behind you at another couple speaking in another language, you should be able to follow their conversation, pick it up, and if you're really just interested in them from now on, you should be able to follow them from then on in the story. Practically, that means cameras that are way more powerful than any that have ever been made. We're talking about practical changes to the way actors act, because it's going to be more theatrical. They're never going to have, you know, a cut from one angle to another. Uh, actors are going to have to act from the beginning of one scene until the end. I don't think filmmaking the way it is now, the way you go to a movie and you have a story told to you, um, you know, one shot after another on a screen is going to change. It's not going to go away. Um, but I do think what I'm doing and what the potential for what I'm doing, uh, you know, means for people is that they get a way richer experience uh, where you introduce an element of choice, you know, an, an element of loss. You know, it, it's not just going to the bathroom and missing five minutes of the movie. If you're not looking uh, in, in, you know, in every direction at once, you know, there, there, there's going to be things that you miss, just like in real life. Um, the practical applications of this technology are that it could realistically replace anything you would film with a traditional camera 
um, and make it so much richer. I mean, we're talking about capturing moments in time and reliving them in a way that's so much closer to how we experience them. When you think of a memory, you don't think about it in a box. You know, when you dream about something, you're not just staring at a screen or a window. Uh, you, you can look around. The hope is that this technology will soon be available and affordable for mainstream consumers. Matt Russell isn't a VR developer, but he's always had an interest in it. My 13th birthday party was actually at a virtual reality place down at Southridge Seaport that obviously no longer exists, hasn't existed for a while. The one thing that changed the most was that it's a lot smaller. I remember when I was a kid, it was this giant unit you'd put on your head. It was very heavy. There was a lot of lag. It was very cumbersome. You could move around, which was quite sophisticated for the time, but you really never knew if you were moving or if it was lagging out, uh, but you did really feel like you were in the computer, and that just by itself was incredible. Now, I mean, I, we've got the internet, we've got high-speed internet. I can download demos and jump into worlds so quickly. It really does blow the mind. Like one second, you're kind of looking out your window. The next, you're, you're flying an airplane or you're soaring as an eagle and you're looking back and seeing your feathers blowing in the wind. That's something that I did the minute I got my Oculus. And uh, yeah, it's an, I forget the name of the app, but you can be an eagle and fly around and literally swoop down and... It's, it's crazy. And when you look back, you're kind of expecting, oh, I'm going to see like sky. You literally see the back of a bird, and you're like, I am a bird. And you believe it. Imagine what you've thought of like flying. It's just like that. Except when you get dizzy and then need to take the headset off because you think you're going to throw up. That's, birds probably don't do that. But will this catch on? Matt seems to think so. Five years from now, you'll be coming home, putting on your headset as if it was you coming home and checking your text messages. You're probably wondering, what are all the implications of this? Are we moving away from real spaces and into virtual ones? Should we be worried? Hannah Yu is a VR enthusiast. She says hesitation to adopt technology is expected, but in the end, there's a lot of benefits. It, it is what it is, right? Like, um, a lot of people thought planes were evil, and, and now we, if we didn't use them, we could never travel. Uh, people thought cars were bad at one point. Uh, I think everything is always met with some trepidation, and there's this thought, even though people obsess with progress, there's this belief that, you know, if it's different, it's bad. I grew up in a really small town. If you told me that I could sit in my little bedroom, you know, back in Michigan and go to New York City, be fantastic. Um, so no, I don't think it's a bad thing. Now, I think what people are worried about is people tapping out of like living, but a lot of people have very robust relationships online, you know. Um, one of my best friends lives halfway around the world. I haven't seen him in a year, but we stay in touch because of email and, and Skype and things like that. So uh, no, I don't think it's bad. I think it's just... It, I guess it just depends on how people use it, you know. Too much of anything can, I suppose, be bad for anybody. So. Oculus Rift is available as a developer kit right now with consumer versions in the works. It might be a while before people are able to play games like the one Charlie played in their own homes. But maybe soon, people all over will find themselves in another world. Or at least that's how Charlie describes the experience. I feel like I'm, uh, I just left another world and now I'm in a different world. So Veronica, I want to ask you, because you actually had the opportunity to play a game using the Oculus Rift. What was that like? It was very disorienting, but very exciting. And I could feel my body respond to the sensory immersion of this experience. Like, I felt like I was moving, even though I was sitting in a chair. And I felt like things were coming at me, even though there was nothing physically in front of me but the Oculus Rift. For our next segment, Veronica, you wanted to find out about smart cities. So what is a smart city? 
Well, first of all, if there's one thing I learned doing this piece, during all that time hanging out with techies, it's that they use a language that sounds almost like English, but it's all their own. Take the word smart, for example. I thought I knew what smart meant. Book smart or even street smart. But right now, I'm going to talk about the kind of smart you use to describe your phone, your home, or increasingly, your city. New York is plunging into smart citydom, but what does that even mean? And more importantly, should we even care? That question led me to Anthony Townsend, a senior researcher at NYU and author of the book Smart Cities, Big Data, Civic Hackers, and the Quest for a New Utopia. He's the expert on smart. When I talk about smart uh, and smart cities, I'm very specifically focus focusing in on the uh, use of new digital technologies to address really timeless urban problems. Think of it this way. New York City is old. Our first subway system was in place even before electrification. Not only does the subway need constant updating just to keep it operational, it needs advancement to accommodate new challenges, challenges like growing populations. Through the years, we've been working towards solving these inevitable problems of public transit using the technology we have at our disposal. For example, have you ever looked up at the ceiling on a subway station and saw what time your train was going to arrive? Turns out traffic and transportation are the kind of timeless urban problems that people get stuck on quite a bit. There's also um, a lot of sensors being put out now that measure different um, aspects of how the surface transportation system works. So, um, you know, taxis uh, have sensors that uh, allow us to measure where they're going, traffic speeds. We are pretty much obsessed with traffic flow. There are sensors on uh, streetlights throughout Midtown and, and spreading through the rest of the city that track easy pass tags in, in vehicles and so they can measure how fast traffic is moving. Sure, this is just one urban problem we're dealing with. People are also using technology to update the power grid, to make the water system more eco-friendly, and solve pollution problems and waste management issues. But traffic and transport are a good place to start to understand how our cities are getting smarter. So in transportation planning, the way that we used to study how uh, people commute um, was basically to send out paper surveys about every five years to a very small sample of the population, maybe something like 1% if you're lucky. Um, and, you know, assuming that they all return those surveys and fill them out accurately, you can then start to build up essentially a grid of, you know, where people live, where they travel to for work, and, you know, when they go home again. The difference between then and now is that now we have all these interconnected devices, most notably our smartphones, which have all these sensors on them. The sensors, like your GPS locator, collect little bits of information and ping them out to other technologies that are capable of harnessing that data. Data like how fast are you moving, where are you going, and how often do you go there. Transportation planners can look at that and basically get a real-time dashboard um, showing where everybody is moving in the city and um, you know look back over time to see how that's evolved. This is one of the things that starts to freak people out. Public agencies and private companies and even individuals having access to the information on your phone sounds a little big brothery. It's also one of the issues we have the least information about. The concerns are broad and hard to calculate because we have questions like, what if this information falls into the wrong hands? Even the White House called for a report on big data and privacy concerns, and the advice from it is basically to wait and see to try not to let it get out of hand, and to keep an eye on the ways this affects our society and adjust our laws accordingly. 
Townsend at least seems optimistic about the benefits of the technologies that are making our city smarter. You know, I think there's tremendous potential, um, and we're, we're at a point now where um, we're about to build over the next century uh, enough room for as many city dwellers as we have throughout all of human history combined. And so we really have to, to tool up and to skill up and, and find new ways of building and running cities that will be more efficient, safer, uh, cleaner. Public agencies aren't the only ones looking for solutions to these problems. Hi, my name is Will Turnage. I'm the VP of Technology and Invention at RGA. I'm a hacker, a maker, a baker, a butcher. <laughs> Let's start there. What do you mean by hacker? Um, so a, a hacker is a technology term that basically implies someone who makes something quickly. You take various pieces of technology or data or information and you put it together very quickly into something usable that you can put in people's hands. These civic hackers are individuals using a lot of the same tools that public agencies are to solve problems from how to evacuate Manhattan quickly in response to a natural disaster to finding your lost dog as quickly as possible. Turnage is one such hacker, and he's really interested in installing this smart technology, these sensors and interconnected devices, into physical objects. He wants to take us off screens as much as possible. His company, RGA, works with startups to develop emerging technologies in what he calls their accelerator program. So one company that was in our accelerator program last year was called Hammerhead navigation and they have a product, the Hammerhead One. The Hammerhead One is a device that solves a different traffic problem, the biking route problem. You mount the T-shaped device on your handlebars and connect it to your phone and it uses LED lights to give you turn-by-turn -turn directions. And that's interesting and, that's, and that's, that's really cool and that's a really useful utility. But the power comes when you have thousands and thousands of people now using these bike navigation devices. Because when you aggregate all that data together, you can now learn more about what are the best places to bike, where are people biking more. Besides overseeing projects like this for his company, Turnage is also a mentor for New York City Big Apps. It's a competition that encourages individuals to contribute to this smart city technology, to become cogs in the wheel, if you'll excuse my outdated metaphor, by using some of the city's public data to create apps for phones or computers. The competition is sponsored by the New York City Department of Economic Development, and it poses questions like, How do we challenge developers and designers to leverage data to identify air pollution? You know, how do you make it easier for New York City residents to find a one-stop shop for housing information from legal resources and affordability? How do you bubble up 311 data around complaints and giving people access to that information? How do you help New York City students get the mental health fund they need? Mayor de Blasio also has his Vision Zero project, which is focused around reducing and eliminating traffic fatalities in New York City. Whether you're a bike enthusiast trying to expand your routes or a public agency trying to maximize the efficiency of your public transportation system, this evolution into a smart city is supposed to solve your problems. But there are concerns that it may not be solving everyone's problems. The way all this smart technology works is by connecting devices and analyzing data. But what if you don't have a device and you can't contribute to that kind of data? The politics of smart cities are complicated because people who don't have access to smartphones and other pricey technologies might not have as strong a voice as those who do. 
their needs might not be addressed in this new utopia that people like Will Turnage and Anthony Towsend are looking toward. But there are ways to combat this. Towsend again. So the way I've been thinking about it is that um, in urban planning, we have a process that's called um, the environmental impact assessment. And um, in most parts of the U.S., most parts of the developed world, before you're going to, say, fill in a bunch of wetlands to build a big shopping mall, there's a, a regulatory process that you have to go through where you basically stop everything, you bring in a bunch of experts, and you, you try to think of all the ways that it could damage the environment. Basically, try to, try to map out everything that could go wrong. Um, and then you have to develop a strategy to mitigate anything that could go wrong. Um, I think we need to do something like that around these big, smart infrastructure projects. Our city is already smart in so many ways. When you walk through a door, it automatically opens. When you enter a room, the air conditioning is activated. And when you swipe your Metro card, you are counted. All of these technologies and so many more are being used to make our city happier, healthier, safer, and an overall better place to live, work, and play. But the jury is still out on whether or not a smart city is more bad than it is good, or whether we should even put a value judgment on it at all. So before we wrap up our Fordham Conversation Science Fair, I want to go around and ask you guys, what'd you learn? What I walked away with is that it's, it boggles my mind how, how technologically advanced we are in this day and age. It wasn't that long ago that the only form of cell phone we had was a flip phone. And now I can get on my cell phone. I can go check my Facebook, my email, handle my bank accounts, and maybe maybe you know trade a few stocks here and there. I think the most interesting thing that I learned is how democratizing all of these technologies are. I mean, with 3D printing, you have people who want printers in their homes so they can print their own prototypes. And with virtual reality, you have a completely open space, a virtual sandbox is the word I kept hearing, where people can build everything from the ground up. You can be whoever you want to be in this virtual world. Thanks again to Fordham Conversation senior producer Alan Kanlick and Cityscape senior producer Veronica Volk. <laughs> You can hear Fordham Conversations every Saturday at 7 a.m. You can also like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, and download our podcast. Stay tuned. George Bodarkey and Cityscape are next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Chris Williams.